I'm Jake Tapper. This is The Lead, and you have been watching accused murderer Alex, Alec Murdoch on the stand under cross-examination from the prosecution. As you no doubt know, the disgraced former South Carolina attorney has pleaded not guilty to the 2021 killings of his wife and younger son. It has been an emotional day of testimony filled with tears and confessions from Murdoch, including his admission that he did, in fact, lie to investigators about not having been at the kennels where his wife and son were shot to death. Let's go straight to CNN's Gene Casares. And Gene, what's your takeaway from Murdoch's testimony today, especially the cross-examination from the prosecutors? Well, let's start with the cross-examination since they're in it right now. This is a murder trial, just as you've described, but you would think on this cross-examination so far that it was a financial crimes trial. He is charged with multiple financial crimes, and it was not supposed to come into this case. But it did. The judge allowed it in. And this is the prosecutor's motive for murder, that all of this had been happening for years. And all of a sudden, he's confronted with one aspect of it. And that night, he went and killed his wife and his son. So suddenly, he would be the victim. And there wouldn't be any further looking at these financial crimes, at least for the moment. So that's why the prosecutor is going into this. But he's diffusing every question by admitting everything. And he hasn't pled guilty or not guilty to any of these financial crimes. So possibly this testimony, which can be used in another court, could seal the deal of being guilty to all of these crimes. Financial crimes, right? Financial crimes. Yeah, interesting. Gene Casares, thanks so much. Uh, Let's discuss this with CNN legal analyst Joey Jackson, who's also a defense attorney and trial attorney, uh, Misty Maris. Uh, Joey, let me start with you. We just heard prosecutors questioning uh, Alec Murdoch about his finances and and possible financial crimes. Um, How is that relevant to the murder accusations? Well, I'll tell you, Jake, how they want to make it relevant. And what they're doing, the prosecutors, is saying he's a liar, he's a cheat, he can't be trusted, and you should not at all take whatever he says uh, at face value or anything else. Understand, taking a step back, Jake, what the motivation is for him to testify. Now we're in the war room. You're going to testify, says his lawyer to the client. Number one, he has to talk about motive, defeat the prosecutor's motive. This is a guy who loved his wife, loved his family, would have no basis for doing committing this murder, right, of either his son or his wife. Number two, with respect to the timeline, he was speaking about the timeline of that evening, where he was, why he was there, at, his, at the home, visiting his mom, etc. She was sick, going through chapter and verse and explaining why, because the prosecution has boxed them in with cell phone and other data. Number three, and finally, he's got to present reasonable alternatives. He's on these pills. Was it gang members who could have done this to his family? His son had some, you know, a, an issue previously with respect to being charged, uh, Uh, you know, in the middle of a crime in a boating accident. And there were people saying not so nice things about that. I can't believe what they did to Papa, as he calls him. So he's now providing reasonable alternatives. So now what does that mean? The defense in doing that presents reasonable doubt. Prosecution and cross-examining him says this guy's a lawyer. He looks people in the eye for a living. He's robbed from quadriplegics. He's robbed from teenagers. He can't be trusted at all. And guess what? Just like now, where he's looking you, ladies and gentlemen, in the eye, he looked his clients in the eye. He stole from him. Don't believe a word. He's guilty. That's the essence of what they're doing in cross the prosecution, and that's the undertone of what they're saying. All right, I'm being told uh, we're going to cut back to the trial now. So let's uh, let's listen back in. And hang on, hang on. I want to say one more thing. And there's no question 
the, the actions that I did, the things that I did wrong, hurt a lot of the people that I care about the most. And I did a lot of damage. And I wreaked a lot of ha havoc. That I'm, a lot of damage wreaked a lot of havoc. I hear you. There's no question right, about it. Let me uh, show you what's been marked as States 315. See if you recognize that. I do. Which case is this? This is Elise Mallory. And what happened in this case? I stole her money. What happened, though, with the underlying case? Can you tell the jury that? Do you remember that? Um, I believe it was Ms. Taylor, uh, Ms. Mallory's. I believe it was her daughter. It might have been her granddaughter, but I believe it was her daughter. Mm -hmm. Was uh, in a wreck. Did she die? And she got killed. And Ms. Mallory came to you for help? She did. You remember that one I at do. all? I okay, really okay, we remember one now. Oh, no, Mr. Waters, I remember all of these people. Okay. It's not that I don't remember them. Uh -huh. You're just asking me details about conversations. Okay, great. I, I, I can promise you, I remember all of these people that I did wrong. Right, and you stole all of the money, didn't you? I, st I, st I stole all of, all of the money. Most, most of the money that I've been accused of stealing, I stole. No, I mean, you stole every single dime of the recovery. She didn't get one dime. Isn't that right? I have to look at the records, but if you that's... You credited right. yourself with legal fees, and then you stole all the rest of the money, correct? I, I don't dispute that. If, all right. If you tell me about, first of all, tell me about Ms. Malley. So she lost her daughter, correct? Is that correct? That is correct. And she came to you for well, help, daughter, is that correct? granddaughter, but... All right. One. All right. And she came to you for help, Correct. Sir, I agree with you on that. Very, very sweet lady, correct? Very sweet lady. All right. Tell me about your conversation when you looked her in the eye and lied to her while you were stealing every dime of the money. That's, this is a perfect example, Mr. Waters. I stole her money. I did her wrong. But I don't even believe that Elise Mallory was there when I stole that money. I don't, if you look at that disbursement sheet, there's, I, I, I don't even believe I ever sh showed that to her. You don't remember having any conversations with her when you lied with her about this case while you were stealing all her money? I don't think I did in this case. I don't think I had any meetings with her. I think I stole her money, and I don't believe that I had a meeting with her. So, again, you can't tell us one conversation you had with any of these people when you looked them in the eye and convinced them that you were doing them right, that you were telling the truth. That's not true, Mr. Waters. I remember a lot of those conversations. I remember a lot of them. Right. You just testified. You remember a lot of them. I've been asking you now for the past 10 minutes to tell me about one of them where it's stuck in your heart. There are a lot it's of stuck in your brain. There are a lot of conversations I had where I misled my clients and I stole their money where they trusted me. And I remember them. OK, so but you can, keep, again, can you tell me one? Tell me how it went down, what you said, how you convinced them. How you looked them in the eye, how you made them believe, how you used your skills as a trial lawyer to convince them. Can you just tell me about one of those? What was going through your head when you did it? Your Honor, objection under Rule 403. We've been going over and over and over this. Objection was overruled. 
right. What's your question, Mr. Waters? Can you tell me about one of the conversations you had with all of these people? Just one. I can tell you, you what was going me. through your head and how it went down when you sat there and looked them in the eye and convinced them that you were doing them right while you were lying to them and stealing their money. Yes, sir. I had a lot of conversations with a lot of my clients that I cared about. And so I, I will tell you that I had conversations with them where I misled them and I lied to them and I took their money. And um, that was a, a, a number of times. But you're asking me. Just one specific one, Mr. Murdoch? Every single, every single one of these clients I would have had conversations with it's, at some it's point. Fine, it's but fine. this particular, like Mr. Waters, that disbursement sheet, I didn't have, there was never a sit down with Ms. Mallory about the dispersing the money. You don't recall talking to her about the status of her case and telling her lies and convincing her that you were on her side? You don't remember that? No, I definitely remember that, but that's not what you Tell asked me. me. I had numerous conversations with Ms. Mallory, you know, about this case. But the fact is, is you were asking me about me sitting down with this disbursement sheet, looking her in the eye and convincing her. And, and I'm telling you that that didn't happen in this case. Now, I had a lot of conversations with her where I misled her, Mr. Waters, where I lied to her. Um, Tell me about one. About. Tell me how it went down. Where. We're going to recess for the day and resume at 9.30 tomorrow morning. Everyone remain seated while the jury leaves. Case. Uh, we'll see you all 9.30 tomorrow morning. All right, the judge has recessed uh, until tomorrow morning at 9.30. Let me bring back uh, my uh, legal panel. Misty, uh, prosecutors uh, had uh, been asking, um, well, let me, let me change subjects for one second. There were several testy exchanges between Murdoch and the prosecutors. Um, tell us what you thought of that. I thought Murdoch was coming off as being incredibly evasive. He was sort of playing the lawyer, talking about the specific terms, the way a question was phrased, not really answering it, but also trying to take accountability without really giving a straightforward answer. Uh, the prosecutors here, of course, these financial crimes, as we discussed before, really showing that going to the motive, but also showing that Murdoch is a liar. We know this is part of the prosecution, a major component of the case, especially when he testified today. But also financial crimes, very often, they feel detached. They don't feel like they involve people. They could be corporate crimes. Well, the prosecutor here is showing the jury that these financial crimes impacted individuals and that Murdoch was able to sit across from them and tell them how their cases were going, how much money they were getting, and lie directly to their faces when they were in their most vulnerable time. So that's the reason we see so much on these particular issues where he stole money from his clients, really humanizing these victims and saying, this guy is capable of really lying to anyone, including you members of the jury. Right. And, and not only to his clients, but he, they pointed out, the prosecutors were, were clear to point out in a number of times that the clients that Murdoch had um, were children 
uh, underage kids who had suffered uh, horrible tragedies. Um, Joey, do you think the cross-examination was effective today? I think so far it lays out certainly that he's a liar, that he can't be trusted, that he has certainly a credibility issue. But you have to connect the dots. It's all fine and well that he has these financial issues and that as a result of that, he was really taking advantage of people who were extraordinarily sympathetic, a quadriplegic, a teenager, underage people. However, at some point in time, the prosecutor is going to have to get to the brass tactics of whether he did this. I think clearly Mr. Murdoch has admitted. I did it. I took advantage of people. Yes, I did. I own it. He's owned it. But he also has said quite clearly he did not do this. And then, Jake, that toggles back to the issue of motive. I'm a man who loves my family. I loved my son. I loved my wife. So why on earth would I do this? Again, with respect to other alternatives and reasonable doubt, who else could have done this? Well, a person who's addicted to pills and a person who's paying $50,000 for that pill addiction may encounter people who are unsavory. Could it have been that? He's alluding to that. And then again, his son, Paul, with respect to what his son, Paul, did in the past, accused in the boating accident and people were making threats against him. So he got all that out. So finally, Jake, what I'm saying to you is, yes, they made headway. That is the prosecution with respect to his veracity, truthfulness and credibility. But for me, it's going to be about the meat and potatoes of what you did when you did it or what you didn't do. And so I'm looking to see when it continues tomorrow to them to get to that. I think that's what everyone wants to see and everyone wants to hear. And Misty, prosecutors pointed out um, to Alec Murdoch that in his interviews with law enforcement, he called his son Paul. But when he was on the stand testifying today, he called him Paw Paw. Um, I guess they were trying to make the argument that Alex Murdoch is a phony, that he's using this cute nickname for his son, but he didn't really think of his son in that way. Is, is that what he was doing, the prosecutor? Yeah, that's what I'm gleaning. The prosecutor is trying to say that he's getting up here on the stand and he's creating this narrative and he's acting so so genuine. And this is all an act. And you know why? Because he's a trial lawyer. He knows what to do. He's standing here looking at his lawyer as the lawyer asks the question and then turning and facing and making eye contact with the jury when he responds with these pet names and very, very sympathetic uh, uh, and, you know, nicknames for his son, Paw Paw. But he says, you know, look, look back to all of these interviews. Now Murdaugh's acting like he called him Paw Paw every single time he refers to him, as you would see from his testimony here today. But if you look back in these interviews, he never said it once. It was always Paul, just another indication that we're dealing with somebody who's a phony. Misty Maris, Joey Jackson, thanks to both of you. Coming up, what did the National Transportation Safety Board find that made the agency's chair say that the Ohio train derailment was 100% preventable? Well, we're going to talk to the NTSB chair next. And we're back with our national lead today. The National Transportation Safety Board released its preliminary report on that toxic train derailment in East Palestine, Ohio, finding more than 115,000 gallons of toxic vinyl chloride were at risk of exploding once the train derailed. Officials say the three-person crew on board did nothing wrong. And the report finds an engineer did apply additional brakes after receiving an alert about an overheating axle. I spoke to the NTSB chief this afternoon after she called the disaster 100% preventable. 
Jennifer Hammondy joins us now. She is the chair of the National Transportation Safety Board. Um, thank you so much for joining us this afternoon. You said the NTSB knows what caused the derailment and overheating in the wheel bearing. Do we have any idea? Do you have any idea what could have caused the overheating? That's something we're going to have to look at as part of the investigation. Right now, we're in the fact-finding phase of the investigation, looking for factual information. And so that will be something that we look at. I asked uh, the head of Norfolk Southern yesterday whether it was true that this train with 150 cars, 20 of whom, 20 of which were, were um, carrying toxic materials, only had two employees and one trainee. Uh, he said he couldn't answer. Um, is it true, though? Yes, it, they had the train was uh, staffed by three personnel in the locomotive, a locomotive engineer, a conductor and a trainee that were all in the head end of the locomotive. And yet, even with the 20 cars with toxic materials um, under current safety rules, um, that train still did not qualify for designation as a high-hazard flammable train, uh, which would have gotten it, or required at least, a newer, safer braking system. So that rule, as it stands right now, clearly was inadequate for the citizens of East Palestine. Why not add the newer braking system to any train carrying hazardous material, not just those with more than 20 cars of hazardous material? Well, and the NTSB has looked at uh, electronically controlled pneumatic braking for a number of years, uh, and we did some testing as well. Uh, Certainly it would improve safety, but for this investigation and for this derailment, ECP brakes would not have prevented the derailment. The wheel bearing failed on car number 23, So even with ECP brakes, the derailment would have occurred, the fire would have ensued, and the five vinyl chloride tank cars would still have to be vented and burned. Uh, What it could have done was maybe reduced damage where a couple of cars could have remained on the tracks, but we're going to do some modeling along with the Federal Railroad Administration to determine just that. Is there any obvious rule change that would have prevented this? It's too early to tell. In our analysis phase of the investigation, we'll look at just that. We'll look at what could have prevented this terrible tragedy. Uh, And it could be regulation changes. It could be recommendations uh, to Norfolk Southern, to the Department of Transportation, or to rail car manufacturers, or to emergency responders. Uh, but it, again, it's too early to tell. And just to mention, the NTSB does not have regulatory authority. At the conclusion of our investigation, we issue safety recommendations that others have to implement. Let's talk about how responders manage the scene, because there was this controlled venting to release and burn the vinyl chloride Uh, You say NTSB had no role in the decision to carry out the vent and burn, and the NTSB did not participate. Are you at all concerned that there was an issue with this process that could have made the existing problem even worse? Well, that is something we will look at as part of the investigation. The Railroad Administration has issued guidance on how to vent and burn rail cars. We're going to look at the decision-making on that. We're going to look at uh, whether the vent and burn 
adhered toward, to the federal guidance. And then we're going to look at the federal guidance itself to see if it needs to be updated or changed. Members of the East Palestine community, uh, as we heard last night at our town hall with them, are reporting health issues. They're scared. It could be 12 to 18 months before your final analysis is released. How can the NTSB get answers and provide support for residents in the meantime? Well, uh, first of all, the conclusion of the final report is about 12 to 18 months. However, right now we, we have the ability at any time during the accident investigation to issue urgent safety recommendations, and we don't wait till the end for that. We are looking at this investigation to do just that. And today we also announced uh, a rare uh, field, field investigative hearing that we're going to have in East Palestine because we believe the community deserves to hear the questions we ask of the witnesses that appear before us. They deserve to hear the answers and they deserve to hear potential solutions for making sure this doesn't happen again. All right, Jennifer Hammondy of the NTSB, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Coming up next, one year into Russia's invasion of Ukraine, CNN is on the ground with an exclusive look at a town on the front line. Stay with us. Topping our world lead now, it is now past midnight in Ukraine, which means that in Ukraine we have hit the one-year mark of Putin's illegal and brutal invasion of Ukraine. Putin thought Ukraine's capital of Kyiv would fall in a matter of hours. He was wrong. Not only did he miscalculate the incredible resolve of the Ukrainian people, estimates show his war has cost 200,000 Russian lives as weapons flooded Ukraine from Western allies, including the United States. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky's forces became competitive against their Goliath aggressor. CNN's Alex Marquardt got some exclusive access to the current front lines in Vuladar, where despite those heavy losses, Putin's army seems to have an unlimited cache of weapons and terror. On the road as the sun comes up, with American fighter Jason Mann at the wheel, driving into the devastated frontline town of Vulidar. Traveling in and out through a muddy field means being exposed, a direct line of sight from Russian artillery and tanks. This is not an early morning war, really, I think. First light means hopefully avoiding the endless Russian shelling raining down, including terrifying thermobaric missiles, everyone aware that a shell could land at any moment. Even as Russian forces struggle to take any real ground here, they're inflicting a massive amount of damage on this town, which is largely made up of these Soviet-era apartment blocks. You can see this one blackened by the fighting. Over here, a massive crater from a Russian missile. Ukrainian forces do have the higher ground here. They are able to use these buildings to defend this town, but it is getting absolutely pummeled. Only a handful of hardy civilians left, their home now eerie apocalyptic ruins. There's a reason I don't like being on this side. For months, man and his unit of foreign troops, called the Phalanx Group, have fought alongside Ukraine's 72nd Brigade, keeping the Russians at bay. This is redefining the global order as we speak. This is democracy versus autocracy. Do we want to let autocracy control more people's lives in the future or prevent it from doing that ever again? 
strictly. And that's what's in your head when you head out there? Absolutely. That's the only reason I'm here. Waves of Russian forces advance in open fields. They've had enormous losses, but they keep coming and keep bombing. This strategic corner of Ukraine is where the southern and eastern fronts meet, making it a major priority for Russia's push deeper into Donbass. Mann arrived in Ukraine at the very beginning of the war. He's a former U.S. Marine who served in Iraq and Afghanistan, who went on to Columbia University and worked at Google as a software engineer. In the village house where the unit lives, a few miles from the front, Mann tells us he's now here for as long as it takes. Ukrainians are very committed to having their country back. Uh, that is, that is, and that includes Crimea to most of them. As long as morale's high, I'm, I'm happy. And it is, he says, as the war enters its second year. New recruits have also just arrived from Canada and the UK. The fight so urgent that team leader Turtle from New Zealand only has a couple days to get them ready. There is such a lot of emotion within these fights. Um, mainly because in, from a lot of what I've seen, is they don't want to be there either. You know, I never thought that I'd ever experience, you know, war in this sort of way, in this sort of capacity. Because we're just fighting war and, I don't know, like, it's like fighting in a time warp. Turtle has to head to a funeral for a Ukrainian teammate just killed by Russian mortar fire. There are so many losses and such little time to grieve. Sort of um, harder for us guys from foreign militaries because, well, you know, ever since like Iraq and Afghanistan, we weren't losing dudes like so fast all the time. It's always good to be able to remember your friends, but it's just hard sometimes when the next day you've got to go out and do something, sometimes even that same day. So. Both Turtle and Man are very matter-of-fact that they could lose their lives fighting for a country that isn't theirs. One year into this war, neither is second-guessing himself. And not everyone gets that choice. For me, it was more of a serendipitous, like, one of those moments in your life that you don't really have a choice, actually. No regrets. No regrets. Yeah. And Jake, Jason Mann, who goes by Doc in his unit, says that given all the resilience and ingenuity he's seen from the Ukrainians over the past year, and this is a quote, it's hard not to believe in the Ukrainians at this point. Now, the unit is expecting the Russians to try to mount something around Volodar around this anniversary. They do not know, of course, what is coming. They are bracing themselves. But given all the failures that they've seen from the Russians so far, Jake, they don't appear to be particularly concerned about this anniversary. Jake. All right, Alex Marquardt in Dnipro, Ukraine. Thank you so much. Tonight at 9 p.m. Eastern, CNN will mark the one year since Russia invaded Ukraine with a special town hall hosted by Fareed Zakaria. That's at 9 p.m. Eastern tonight. Our coverage continues next with Wolf Blitzer in the Situation Room. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country. Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.